And now, Lord, as we come to your word, we remember, O oh Lord, that we need Christ. And we must feed on him. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would nourish us with your word and with the Spirit working in us to illuminate the text and give us understanding. And we pray, O oh Lord, that this would not just be intellectual understanding, but that you would give us an understanding of your word that conforms us not to the world, but to Christ. We pray that you would transform our minds as we pursue Christ's likeness. O oh Lord, break our hearts, comfort our hearts, accomplish your purposes in our lives with your word as only you can in order that we may reflect your glory, your glorious attributes in our daily lives for the glory of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles with you, please turn to John chapter 17. If you don't have a physical Bible with you, and if you don't have a Bible app, uh, we do have Bibles out in the foyer on the counter. Uh, feel free to, um, to take one home with you if you need to. If you don't have a, a physical Bible already, uh, those are free for the taking. But we will be looking at John chapter 17, verse 6 today as we continue our study in John. Uh, as I was studying this, uh, this verse, um, chapter 17, verse 6, I found four doctrines in this verse, uh, each of which is worthy of a sermon. But uh, I promise you guys we're, we're only going to cover it in one sermon, and I'm not going to keep you here till dinner time. So we'll be looking at John chapter 17, verse 6 today. You know, as, as you consider the disciples who they were, what their backgrounds were. They were fishermen, they were tax collectors. Tax collectors were thugs. They, they were rough, rough people who committed extortion, who did all sorts of, of wicked and vile things. They, they, the disciples all came from inglorious backgrounds. And one of the surest proofs that the Christian faith is true is that it even exists. They were the first ones to testify of the truth of Christ. These men with, with really weird, really uh, lowly backgrounds were the ones to testify of the truth and, and bring it forth into the world. The fact that they succeeded is proof that Christianity is true. I mean, sometimes I, I, I marvel at the fact that God would want someone you know, like me or be able to use somebody like me just because I'm more aware of my own flesh nature. I'm more aware of my, my weaknesses and uh, the weaknesses of my flesh, the weaknesses of my faith. And nobody knows those things better about me than myself other than God. And to an extent, I think that every Christian can or at least should be able to say the same thing. But when we consider the kinds of people throughout history, throughout the Old Testament, for starters, that God has saved and used, we see a pattern. The pattern throughout the Old Testament is this. God never saved or never used perfect people. In fact, what we see is a pattern of Him doing the exact opposite, that He calls lowly people to bring forth His purposes. 
if God had asked me, and of course he never would, but just hypothetically speaking, humor me for a second, if he had asked me to assemble a dream team of men who would start a religion that would absolutely change the world, faithfully bringing the gospel to the four proverbial corners of the earth, I would have probably said something like this. I think I probably would have said, well, you know, you need intelligent men. You need educated men. So they need to come from a good seminary. Uh, They need to be men who are bold and courageous, and yet they have to be winsome and and kind and, and gentle. They need to have connections to elite people so that the message can be spread as wide and as as clearly as possible, as far as possible. The powerful, the wealthy, they need to have connections to those sorts of people. After all, those are all the qualities that you find in modern, successful, what we call influencers. And yet, the wisdom of God is made evident in the fact that the disciples had few to none of those qualities, to say the very least. Instead, sometimes they were actually very brash. Uh, Sometimes they were extremely cowardly. Uh, Most of them didn't have an education that was worth mentioning. Paul tells us that God chose to place this treasure, that is the gospel, he chose to place this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. That's from 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. The fact is, among us, as we look around us, there are no perfect earthly vessels. I'm I'm not perfect. You're not perfect. The disciples weren't perfect. And thus, God's sovereign power is demonstrated by Him using lowly earthen vessels like us to serve Him and to accomplish His purposes on earth. Now, we're in the middle of chapter 17 studying what's called Jesus' high priestly prayer. Uh, In the first five verses, Jesus consecrated Himself and He prayed uh, in verses 1-5 to that the Father would glorify Him, but the reason that He wanted the Father to glorify Him was so that He could glorify the Father. But now, starting in verse 6, Jesus now begins praying for those who would testify of Christ first. The first layer to be built upon the foundation which is Christ would be the disciples. This section of the prayer will stretch from verses 6 to 19 where he's praying specifically for the 11 disciples. And actually, as we've seen, this pattern follows the pattern that was established for the high priest in Leviticus chapter 16. First, he was to consecrate and pray for himself. Then he was to pray for the temple priests. Then he was to pray for the whole assembly. And that's the pattern that Jesus is following throughout this chapter. And as you look across the the total chapter here, all of chapter 17, what we find is that there are a total of five petitions that Jesus makes in this prayer. But what's interesting is that only one was for himself. Out of the 26 verses that we find in this chapter, there are a total of five, only one for himself. Only five of those verses out of 26, out of this whole prayer, are for him. And, and even the, the one thing that he asked for for himself, even that one thing was ultimately not for himself. It was for the glory of the Father. Such a selfless prayer. And now, with his hour come and with his time to be crucified only a few hours away, he continues to pray 
selflessly. Now for the disciples. As we come to this verse today, the point of the beginning of this section of Christ's high priestly prayer is that God's people have been called to be separate from the world. And we're called to live in a new way that's distinct from the ways of the world by a new power for a new and higher purpose. This was true of the disciples, as we're going to see today. And it's true for you and me as well as anyone who belongs to Christ yesterday, today, or tomorrow. So Christ now turns the subject of his prayer to the 11 disciples. And we continue reading in verse 6. Jesus says, I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. Now like the rest of this chapter, which I believe is rightly viewed as the richest and best chapter in all of Scripture. This, this is the pinnacle of Scripture that we're ascending. This one verse, this, this single sentence that Jesus prays here is absolutely loaded with theological truths that are so important for us to have a right understanding of. When I told Christina that I had four points that I found in here, four major doctrines that are found in this one verse, it kind of blew her mind. Uh, it blew my mind. This, this one verse is just so loaded. But we find no less than four very important doctrinal truths in this one verse. The first doctrinal truth is found in Jesus saying to the Father, I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. They were yours. The disciples originally were God's. Now, one of the very basic building blocks of biblical theology is the doctrine, the the understanding that everything and everyone belongs to to God. God is the one who made all things. God is the one who made all plants, all, uh, all rocks, all material, all, all things. He made it all. And so it all belongs to Him. Every person, everything. And thus everything, since it belongs to God, they are His to do whatever He pleases with. God is the one who is sovereign. Man is not sovereign. Man is owned by God and subject to God. No person can ever say that he belongs to himself in the ultimate sense, not only because he didn't make himself, but he ultimately doesn't even sustain himself either. God is the one who sustains all things at all times. If he stopped sustaining all things for one nanosecond, this would all break apart and it would be nothing but chaos. The only reason it doesn't is because God is the one continually sustaining all things. We find this doctrine maybe most explicitly uh, expounded upon in Romans chapter 9, verses 20 and 21, where Paul writes, The thing molded will not say to the molder, Why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? The potter does have the right to do that. That's the point that Paul is making there. And the reason that God has the right to do that, God's the potter in that little image, uh, the reason that God has the right to do that is because He owns all things and all 
persons. Uh, We also find this doctrine throughout the Old Testament. It's really expounded upon in the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, we find that God's ownership of all persons is actually the basis for uh, some things that Jesus included in the, the first and greatest commandment. We read this in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 12 to 14. What does the Lord your God require from you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways and love Him and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and to keep the Lord's commandments and His statutes which I am commanding you today for your good. Now listen to this. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the highest heavens, the earth and all that is in it. Psalm 24 verse 1 echoes this same type of thing very similarly. It says, The earth is the, Lord, is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. So needless to say, if God has sovereign ownership over all things that are in heaven, the highest heavens, the earth, and all that's in it, if a person is in one of those things, and we are, then God has sovereign possession, sovereign ownership of them. We find it in Daniel, where King Nebuchadnezzar, after being subjected to seven years of insanity as a temporal punishment from God, was granted not only his sanity once again, but he was also apparently granted salvation. And he wrote in light of this experience, he said, but at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my reason returned to me and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever. For His dominion is an everlasting dominion and His kingdom endures from generation to generation. Listen to what he says here. He says, All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but He does according to His will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth. And no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? How is it that God does according to His will on earth? I mean, what about the, the free will of people? That's a, that's a real thing. We do have free will. What, how do we make any sense of that? Because what Nebuchadnezzar is saying there is that He does His will among them. It doesn't always appear that this is the case, particularly when evil things happen. But God is as sovereign over the greatest things as He is over even the smallest things. And as such, He accomplishes His purposes and is able to use even evil deeds to accomplish His good purposes even when people mean evil. In Job 41.11, God says, Who has given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. It's because of God's sovereign authority over all things and all people that Paul can say, God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purposes in Romans 8.28. Now, if all people and all things didn't belong to God, He wouldn't have the sovereign right, He wouldn't have the sovereign authority to use all things for our good, for the good of His people, and for His glory. He couldn't use everything as He pleases and as He has promised. But all things and all people belong to God. In a world that at times looks like it is just going crazy. Like it's just going haywire. Like it's completely out of control. Anybody ever watch the news? That's what it looks like. 
the fact that God has sovereign possession over all things and all people is incredibly comforting. Like everything and everyone else, the disciples were originally God's possession in a general sense, in this general sense. But now, Jesus speaks to the disciples in a more narrow sense. Uh, The the first point uh, that, that Jesus draws on here in this verse is that all people belong to God. The second is that he reveals here, which is similar to the first, is that the disciples were given by the Father to the Son, Jesus Christ. They weren't just possessed generally, like all things and all people are possessed generally by God. No, these men, these 11 disciples, were possessed by God in the sense that He had separated them from the world and had set them apart with a high and holy calling. They were given to Christ the Son by the Father from out of the world is what Jesus says here in this verse. Now we know that all who come to Christ were given to Him by the Father out of the world. We're born into the world. That's the only place that He, that he can draw from, right? So everybody who comes to Christ is given to Christ from out of the world. Now this is a doctrine that we've seen throughout our study of John's Gospel. In chapter 6, verse 39, for example, Jesus said, This is the will of Him who sent me, that of all that He has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. So, everybody who comes to Christ was drawn to Christ by the Father. John 6.44, No man may come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So, everyone who comes to Christ must be given to Christ by the Father, drawn by the Father to Christ. And this was true of the disciples as well. Jesus will make reference to this fact, not only here in verse 6, but He'll do it again in verse 9, where He says, I ask on their behalf, I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom You have given Me. Now, all in all, Jesus will have referred to this fact a total of seven times before the end of His prayer here in chapter 7. The disciples were all chosen out of the world, set apart by the Father, given to the Son. Jesus had spent three years with these men. Three years walking with them, talking to them, eating with them, preaching to them, enjoying fellowship and friendship with them. And while they are said to have believed in Jesus at various points, these men serve as a very remarkable, a very stark contrast to the rest of humanity. Because while Jesus ministered publicly, He glorified God in the sense that He revealed God's glorious attributes. He was slow to anger. He was gracious. He was kind, patient, gentle. The list goes on and on. He was everything that actually makes a person likable and even lovable. And yet, while the disciples did love Him, the world didn't. Not only did the world not like him or love him, but the world hated him. Even though he possessed all of these attributes that make a person likable. Time and time again, people witnessed him performing incredible miracles. Uh, Some were small and, and subtle miracles, but there were many great and astounding, very publicly seen miracles. And yet, 
those miracles were never enough to convince anyone to believe in him in a saving manner. We read back in chapter 2 of how people were fascinated by him after observing his miraculous deeds. But then we saw that he was not entrusting himself to them because he knew the unbelief of their hearts. They just wanted to be entertained. They just wanted to be astonished. And Jesus wasn't fooled. He, he knew it. He knew that that was all they wanted. But the disciples, they're a contrast to all those people. The disciples not only stuck with Him, but at various points throughout their time with Jesus in the three years, they made incredible professions of faith in Him. It might have appeared on the surface as just a spectator, just observing from the outside. It might have appeared that his ministry was really kind of a failure. After all, almost everyone who started to follow him eventually fell away. We saw that especially in chapter 6. But the truth is that all the disciples, the men who were given to Christ by the Father, they remained faithful even when the majority of others, even when the world went astray. The only exception was Judas Iscariot, but he wasn't given to Christ for the purpose of being saved by Christ. He was given to Christ for the purpose of betraying Christ. Jesus knew that they had been given to him by the Father. And so he never once had to resort to what we call pragmatism. You know what pragmatism is? If you go into a church where there's smoke and, and lasers and dark rooms and ambient music and you know to set a tone, those are all very pragmatic. What those are doing is they're trying to accomplish an, an, an end. It's a means to an end. Pragmatism is essentially the thinking that you know we could do, we could reach more people if we just do this and that and this and that and this and that. That's not the way that Jesus thought. The thinking that he could have a bigger and stronger following if he only did this or that, if he only performed more miracles, if he only performed bigger miracles, if only he would stop confronting people in their sins so often, or just doing anything and everything that he could to attract people. He was never, ever drawn to that kind of thinking. No, Jesus ministered first and foremost for the glory of God alone and not for the praise and not for the approval of men he wasn't in it to get a big following he was in it to please and to glorify god by doing things god's way now this might shock you but there was never ever throughout jesus's ministry there was never a single indication that jesus was concerned about numbers he was concerned with faithfulness. And he knew that nobody could come to him in faith unless the Father drew them to him. And so he knew that if he would just be faithful, God's purposes would be accomplished. He didn't have to resort to gimmicks. So Jesus prays here for his disciples, acknowledging here that these 11 disciples were given to him by the Father, that they had belonged to God in a general sense, but that God had set them apart to be given to Christ. Third, Jesus says that He manifested your name, manifested God's name to them. 
Now, there are a lot of different ideas. If you, if you read enough commentaries, there are a lot of ideas out there about what Jesus might have meant by this. Uh, some think that it meant that he revealed God's purposes to them. Um, that's certainly true, uh, and that's possibly at least part of what Jesus meant here. But I don't think it's the fullness of what Jesus is saying here. Another understanding of this is simply that Jesus exemplified all the different names and the connotations and implications of those names from the Scriptures to the disciples. Names like Elohim, uh, Jehovah, Adonai, El Elyon, Jehovah Sabaoth, and so on and so forth. And while I don't get the impression that he fully agreed with this position, James Montgomery Boyce noted of this understanding that, quote, the name of God is a Semitic phrase for speaking about God's attributes. To make the name known is to reveal the God who possesses those attributes, end quote. The problem with this, as we see in Romans 1, is that when people see God's attributes, when those attributes are revealed to them, what do they do by nature? They suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Therefore, none have an excuse before Him because God has made Himself and His attributes, at least some of them, evident to them in nature, in their hearts. His law is written on their hearts and yet their conscience testifies to the fact that they have broken His law over and over and over again. See, the problem with with this position is that it's all just very intellectual. It's just just head knowledge. It's academic. And that's part of the picture. The the heart isn't going to know anything if the mind doesn't know it first. So, So that's not to say that we don't need head knowledge. We do. But it's not enough to save. No, what we need is heart knowledge. Jesus did fully reveal God in the glory of His attributes to the disciples. No question about it. In fact, He gave them a name for God that they had never known before, and they never would have known if He hadn't told them. It's a name that nobody in all of the Old Testament used toward God or in reference to God. You know what that name is? It's pretty simple. Father. Father. Now, in the Jewish tradition, it would have been considered at least disrespectful, if not blasphemous, uh, and perhaps extremely improper to refer to God as Father. Jesus is actually the first person in all of Scripture to use that title toward God, and He wanted His disciples to do the same. Uh, When the disciples asked how they should pray, How did the Lord's Prayer begin? Our Father. He's telling them to begin this prayer by addressing Him not as, O great God above heaven and earth of whom I'm so unworthy to stand before... You can do that, but what He's saying is address Him as your Father. In fact, every time we see Jesus pray throughout His ministry, every single time we see Him pray, He uses this title. And when He spoke to Mary Magdalene after being resurrected, He said to her, I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to My brethren and say to them, I ascend to My Father and Your Father, My God and Your God. We'll see that when we get to John chapter 20, verse 17. In other words, He was instructing His people to use the same title toward God. Father. In this sense, He not only revealed God to them, but He revealed that through Him, that is through Jesus, they had entered into a new 
type of relationship with God in which all who believe in Him are reconciled to Him and are welcomed into His family. That of an adopted child to an adopting father. Now this third point reminds us that knowing God and being reconciled to Him through Christ is the most important thing we can do in life. That's what it means when Jesus says, I I, I manifested your name to them. He made God known to them in in a completely different way. In a completely different relationship. To know God's name is to know God. And there is nothing that you can aspire to. There is nothing in life that you can pursue that's more important than that. You must know God. There's nothing more important than that. Indeed, to not only know Him as God, but to know Him as your Heavenly Father. Richard Phillips notes this. He says, quote, This knowledge of God's name is revealed only to His people. And this knowledge is a mark of the people of Christ. End quote. You must know that if you are to come to the Father... There is only one way to the Father, and that is through faith alone. Not, your own, not by your works, not by your merit. In Jesus Christ alone. Your faith alone in Christ alone is the only way to the Father. Jesus said earlier that evening, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody comes to the Father but through Me. John tells us in no uncertain terms that In his first epistle, he says, Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. So, you consider these other religions where they claim to be monotheistic, maybe, but they claim to know God. The question is, do they know Christ? And not only do they know Christ, because you'll find some cults out there that claim to know Christ, but do they know the Christ of Scripture? And do they know Him and believe in Him? Is it a saving type of relationship? Do you know God that way? Have you come to the Father through the Son? Prior to Jesus, nobody in Scripture referred to God as Father. But Jesus fully revealed God. And through Jesus, we are adopted by God as sons and daughters. And thus, we too have this incredible privilege of using this title when we pray. Father. Father. The only time that Jesus didn't use this title, Father, when He prayed, actually underscores the importance of having this kind of reconciled, adopted relationship with God. The only time Jesus didn't use this title when He was praying was when He cried out from the cross, My God, My God, Why have you forsaken me? That underscores the importance of that title. The only time that Jesus didn't use that title was when He felt the relationship was broken. In in that moment when He prayed, My God, My God, why have you forsaken me? The joyful fellowship that Jesus had experienced with the Father throughout all of eternity was broken. Was strained as He who knew no sin became sin for us. In that moment, He felt the estrangement from God that we deserve as a result of our sin. 
And He bore the wrath that our sin deserved as He took our sin upon Himself. That's the only time He didn't use the word Father, the title Father. The Son, who had only known joyful fellowship with the Father, bore the Father's wrath so that children of wrath, as we were born children of wrath, like you and me, might know the joyful peace and the joyful fellowship with God that Christ Himself had experienced for all of eternity. And the only way to have that joyful peace, the only way to be reconciled to God, is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. You must believe in Jesus. This is how you come into this relationship with God as your adoptive father. This is what it meant for Jesus to manifest the name of God to the disciples. And by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, He manifests the name of God to us today even as well. So first, the disciples belong to God. Secondly, the Father gave the disciples to Christ. Third, Christ made the name of God manifest to the disciples. The fourth doctrine that we find here that Jesus covers is actually the highest and the greatest thing that Jesus ever said or could have said about the disciples. He says this, you see it at the end of verse 6? They have kept your word. Those are high words of commendation. They have kept your word. When you look at your life, can, can you imagine how he could possibly say that about you? I, I don't know how he could say it about me. The disciples had to be thinking, is he talking about us? They've kept your word. Now, the, the Greek word that gets translated kept here is... It's a very flexible word, but it essentially means to observe or to guard. Uh, Looking at the way that Jesus has used this word throughout John's Gospel will help us grasp the full meaning. We'll start with John 8.51 where Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps, there's that word, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. In John 14.15, Jesus said in in the farewell discourse, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Uh, again, in, in chapter 14, he followed that up by saying in verse 21, He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. Verse 23, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. Verse 24, He who does not love me does not keep my words. Major theme in chapter 14, obviously. Keeping his word. And now in chapter 17, verse 6, he says of the disciples, they have done this. They have kept your word. This word kept clearly has everything in the world to do with walking in obedience to God. This isn't just something that they have memorized. It's not just something that they have intellectually understood. They have understood it intellectually, but it's also something that has penetrated their hearts so that it wasn't just something that was merely head knowledge. It wasn't just something that they gave intellectual assent to, but it was actually a lifestyle. It was a way of living that they embraced and practiced. See, God didn't separate these 11 men. He didn't separate these disciples from the world. He didn't call them out from the world only for them to look 
and to live and to think and to act like everyone else around them, to act like the world. They were to be in the world, but not of it, right? But they weren't to be basically chameleons who just blend in with the world. And we've seen they were very, very different in the way they viewed Christ and believed in Him than the world around them. No, they were in the world, but they were not of it. How many people throughout Jesus' ministry, how many people total do you imagine might have heard Jesus preach? I mean, it's obviously in the tens of thousands. Uh, But how many out of those kept His Word? How many of those tens of thousands who heard His Word kept His Word? I mean, one, one perfect example is after feeding the 5,000 men and their families, so probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 20,000 people, he, he fed them with just two uh, small fish and five barley loaves, uh, which was perhaps his greatest miracle that he ever uh, performed. And not only was it his greatest miracle, but there were perhaps the most people there who saw it. And in the aftermath, what we see is that not a single one of them kept his word. Not a single one. Instead, what we saw is that they they looked upon Him very selfishly. They saw Him uh, not as a Savior, but as a servant. Somebody who could be a means to their own ends. And they ultimately ended up complaining later in chapter 6. This is a, a difficult statement. Who can listen to it, they said, as they walked away from Him. And Jesus turns to the disciples. And he says, are you going to go away too? And that's where Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. So who didn't walk away? Who was able to listen to what Jesus was preaching? The disciples. And by God's grace, you and I are able to listen as well. Because God's people the people that He has separated, that He has called out from the world and given to Christ, we're not like the world. And we're not to look like the world. And we're not to think like the world. We're not to speak like the world. No, God's people hear God's Word and they keep it. They obey it. They submit themselves to it and they do so joyfully. It's their delight to submit themselves to His Word. The world looks at it and says, why would I deprive myself of all these sins I, I, I enjoy so much? And we look at it as, why would we deprive ourselves of God's love? I, I would trade all this filth for reconciliation with God. It was A.W. Tozer who once wrote, quote, the driver on the highway is safe not when he reads the signs, but when he obeys them. End quote. God doesn't draw a person to Christ, separating them from the world only to leave them just the way they are. He doesn't leave them to be consumed by worldly ideologies that are totally antithetical to the gospel. He doesn't leave them to pursue or to delight in carnal pleasures and worldly ambitions as their highest priorities in life. No, when they do, and and we all have this inclination to sin, right? What does God do? He disciplines us. He disciplines us as a loving Father. Not as a wrathful Father, but as a loving Father. 
Those are things. Pursuing carnal pleasure, worldly ambitions, those are things he leaves the world to do. But those are not things that he leaves his children to do. No, we are to no longer live and think and speak and act like the world. Our values as God's children through adoption are supposed to be the exact opposite of the world's values. And thus our lives should look nothing like the lives of those of the world. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12. He writes this. He says, Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. See, the Bible breaks all of humanity here into two groups. Those who have the Spirit of the world and those who don't. Those who don't keep God's Word and those who do. Those who are in the world and those who are separated from the world. So according to this verse, how do we know someone uh, has the spirit of the world? It's because they don't understand and frankly they, they don't really even care about the things related to God. But the Spirit of God enables us to know the things freely given us by God. Paul says right here, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12. There's a reason that we have the Spirit. It's so that we would be different from those who have the Spirit of the world. We're able to discern things spiritually. That's to say that the Spirit aids us in understanding God's Word, understanding God's promises, knowing what He's, what he's promised, and applying His Word to our lives. So because of our understanding... And because God has given us a new heart which not only desires to understand, but also to obey, and that delights in obeying, God's people distinguish and discern the differences between worldly philosophies and religions from true religion. Paul says to the Colossians, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. See, the Christian is one who isn't deceived by the traditions of men, and they're not deceived or led astray by the elementary principles of the world. He doesn't confuse the ways of the world as being God's ways. He realizes that God's ways are very different from the world's, and therefore when there's a philosophy that might even use Christian language, he's not led astray. He's not deceived. And yet, so many in our day and age who profess to be Christians are doing just that. They're being led astray by worldly philosophies. They're being deceived. This is exactly what the social justice cult is all about. And they've been incredibly successful at influencing the modern church. In a very real sense, so much of the modern church is simply following the lead of the world. By the way, if you want to know where that comes from, you could trace it right back to pragmatism. But so much of the modern church is simply following what the world 
is leading them to do. Embracing worldly ideologies and thereby exchanging the truth that we find in God's Word for false worldly religions and philosophies and ideologies like critical race theory and and wokeism. You know something's off when people who claim to be Christians are heralding the world's message and conflating the world's message with the Gospel, which is exactly what the social justice cult does. Christians do not walk in the ways of the world. We're not called to that. We're called to something higher, something better. They, they not only do not, but they cannot. It, when we do, and sometimes, yes, we fall into sin. Sometimes people backslide for quite a while. But you know what happens? God brings them back. He disciplines them. He pulls on the leash, so to speak. Our hearts testify that this world has nothing, nothing for us. That it is not our home. And that we're strangers and aliens and exiles here. And we feel the pain and the weight of our hearts yearning, as did the saints of old, yearning for another country of our own. When you look around at the world today and you see the chaos, don't you feel hungry for heaven? Writing of the saints of old, the author of Hebrews says this, Hebrews eleven sixteen. He says, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared a city for them. Let me ask you this. Do you see yourself wanting a better country, but wanting that country to be this country? Of course, we all want a better country. There's almost an ideological civil war going on right now. Some people want the country the way it used to be. Some people want a different type of country in the future. No, those are people who would see themselves as Americans first. And if they claim Christ, they would claim Christ second. No, we're citizens of heaven first. We're not hungry for a better country here. We're not hungry for a better America. We're hungry for a heavenly country. Is that you? Are are, are you like those saints that the author of Hebrews was writing about who was desiring a heavenly land, a dwelling place where sin is absent and cannot enter, a dwelling place for eternity where we are constantly aware of the fact that we are in God's presence and worshiping Him continually night and day? The Christian is never and in no way to be conformed to this world, friends. Paul says to the Romans, chapter 12, verse 1, he says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. What will renew our mind? God's Word will. And as we expose ourselves more and more to God's Word, as the Spirit gives us understanding and a desire to keep His Word, walking in obedience to Him, we will become less and less like the world because we're becoming more and more like Christ. Puritan Anthony Burgess wrote this. He said, quote, Men of the world are proud, earthly, brutish, running into all pleasures. There cannot be a surer symptom that you are still of the world than by speaking, doing, and living as most in the world do. End quote. 
God's people are set apart to be different from the world. Conformed to Christ and not to the world. One of the surest signs of this change is that friendships that maybe you once had with unbelievers start to turn stale. Maybe they even start to turn a little bit hostile. Why? Because the more you become like Christ, the more unworldly you are. Meanwhile, they're just becoming more and more worldly. What fellowship has light with darkness? And so what, what happens is you be, as you're becoming more and more like Jesus is you're becoming more and more of a stench to them and they to you. The things that, that they like to do, the things that they like to talk about become less and less interesting to you. If Jesus said that the world will hate us because of Him, because of their hatred for Him, how can we maintain our closest friendships with people of the world? We can't. If, if they're not hating us, if they're not growing in their hatred of us, something is very, very wrong. If they are not in Christ, friends, they cannot stir up your affections for Christ. They cannot encourage or grow you in your faith. And they should not be your closest companions. To think otherwise... To think that you can be closest friends with the world is to set an extremely dangerous snare for yourself, friends. Don't go there. James asks this. He writes, Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. That's from James 4.4. See, you have a choice to make. Will you dwell with Lot near Sodom? Everything's going to burn. Or are you going to dwell with Abraham in the promised land? One of the surest signs of an obedient life, of being one who keeps God's Word, is when the world not only isn't interested in being friends with you, but when they actually start to hate you. John writes this in 1 John 5, uh, 19 and 20. He says, we know we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. God's people have been called to be separate from the world, separate from those who are lying in the power of the evil one. And we are set apart by a new power for a new and higher purpose, a holy power, a holy calling, a holy purpose. If God used frail men like the disciples for His purposes, He can do the same with you. He can do the same with anyone. What amazing grace that though we would not come to Christ or seek God on our own, God would effectually call us out of the world, separating us from the world for His own purposes, driving the Spirit of the world out of us and replacing it with the Holy Spirit who now dwells within us, guiding and instructing us away from the ways of the world and in the ways of God. What grace! You are called to be holy. 
You are called to be separate. You are called to be pure and undefiled by the things of the world as God Himself is holy and undefiled by the things of the world. See, in Scripture, something that's designated as holy, something that is separated unto God, is designated not only for God's sovereign possession, but for His service. Refusing to listen to secular music or insisting that everyone wear their Sunday best. I mean, there are some things like that that might be kind of a good idea, but we're not saved by those things. Nobody's saved by those things. That's moralism. We're not saved by moralism. Moralism doesn't have the power to save us. Moralism only has the power to condemn us. Moralism doesn't lead to holiness. In fact, moralism only leads away from holiness. Moralism keeps our eyes and our minds on the things of the world, on the people of the world, to ensure that we're not like them. But what Jesus calls us to is to set our minds on things that aren't of this world, to pursue Him, to desire Him, and to delight in walking in His ways to set our hearts and affections on Him above everything else. And as we do that, we'll find that the things of this world become less and less appealing. In all things, therefore, let us live our lives under God's authority for His glory, seeking to subject ourselves joyfully to those things that will increase our nearness to and fellowship with God our Heavenly Father, through faith in Christ, His Son, in order that it may be said of us as it was of the disciples, they kept Your Word. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You that by Your grace, You have called us out of darkness and into Your marvelous light. Into this new relationship with You. On our own, the only way we could know You is as a criminal knows a judge. But by Your grace, by what Jesus did, we are able to know You as Father. We thank You for adopting us though we were unworthy, though we could never deserve Your grace or Your love or Your compassion, though we should never have deserved in any way to be loved as You love Christ, You clothed us in His righteousness. You called us out of the world and, to make us, and You've made us Your own. You've given us real, true faith and a higher purpose than we ever could have lived for apart from Your grace. And so we pray, O Lord, that You would teach us to subject ourselves more fully and more joyfully to Your Word. Teach us, O Lord, to walk in Your light as You are in the light in order that the world around us may see the attributes that Christ Himself demonstrated throughout His life. May they see our joy in You. May they see our delight in You. May they see that we are completely different in order that You may use any of those opportunities 
as chances for us to preach the gospel to them. To share the good news that Christ has lived the perfect life, has died a sinner's death, and that He was resurrected to prove that all who believe in Him are in fellowship with You. We thank You for this relationship and pray, O Lord, that You would teach us to glorify You in all that we do. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.